In today's podcast, I'm talking with Robbie Epsom, the head of ESG for CBRE Global Investors in Europe, the Middle East and Africa, who is part of the ESG team led by Sasha Najuguli, their global head of ESG. I'm keen to discuss with him CBRE Global Investors sustainability vision. Robbie's a chartered environmentalist and a fellow of and board member of the Institute of Corporate Responsibility and Sustainability. He joined CBRE Global Investors in January 2021 and is based in London. He's a master's degree in chemical engineering, along with a diploma in industrial studies from Loughborough University, and is one of the founders of the Sustainability Circle. So welcome, Robbie, to the ESG podcast. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. There are lots of subjects we could cover today. So let me start by asking you, if you would briefly, just tell us a little about CBRE Global Investors, including when the firm was founded and how long you've been involved in ESG. So we're the investment management arm of the CBRE Group, which you may have heard of. So we're CBRE Global Investors. We're one of the world's leading real asset investment managers. Um, We've got over 122 billion in assets under management. and uh, we've built that up over the last uh, 40 years um, with, with a focus on, on real assets. So giving uh, our institutional clients uh, access to both real estate and infrastructure. Uh, and that's across the Americas, Europe uh, and Asia Pacific. So um, our clients really have that, that access to a complete range of investment solutions. That includes everything from equity and debt, uh, direct and indirect um, and also listed and unlisted strategies. And I, I think just one, one other important point is our, our clients are typically institutional clients. So things like pension funds and, uh, and insurance. How long have you personally been interested in ESG? Yeah, I've been doing sustainability for, for 12 years. It's always been something I, I wanted to do. I grew up in Kenya, in East Africa. Through that, I've always been passionate about conservation. So the, you know, the E bit of, uh, of ESG. My first job was at Unilever. Um, and I think that's it's probably there that I really caught the kind of corporate sustainability bug. Uh, as you know, they're, they're definitely um, they're leaders in, um, in sustainability and, and still are. It's interesting you should have a, a background in Kenya. I grew up in Nigeria. And my first um, approach to ESG is often to wonder not necessarily what the Western world is is doing, but how will it be translated across the um, Africa, the continent of Africa, and also the the subcontinent in India. And a few weeks ago, we we had a really interesting podcast with um, Aisha Salim, who's a venture capital uh, research analyst for Laxon Investments based in Karachi. And... I think anybody listening to this podcast would do well to have a listen as well to, to uh, Aisha's uh, perspective on ESG and also the subcontinents, because I think we think we've got all the arguments and answers here um, in the West, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. So I think the next 18 months to three years could be very interesting indeed um, to see how ESG unfolds, which is another reason really why I was so pleased you 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 were prepared to come on to the podcast, really. Um, what would you say is the level of awareness about ESG's importance across CBRE global investors' client base? Is it total yet, or is it still emerging? And and then, is it are the are the job, does it change by geography um, or, or sector depending on you know how well embedded it is? I think I mean first I completely agree with your point, and uh, I think you know getting different views on on sustainability that diversity element is absolutely key. So I think uh, yeah, completely right, uh, and I echo your thoughts on that. In terms of awareness, I think the first thing I'd like to say is uh, is how impressed I've been with the level of awareness um, about ESG across across CBRE global investors. Um, you know, I'm, I'm new to the business, uh, having only joined in 
January this year. And, you know, it's great to see that from you know, CEO and executive level right down to our fund managers and analysts, uh, you know, it's fully integrated. And, you know, as a business, we very much moved beyond the why and, you know, we're starting to focus on the how. Um, in terms of client, our client base and awareness there, um, I think coming from a consultancy background uh, where I've worked across many sectors, I have to say I've been surprised at just how seriously the finance sector is taking ESG. Um, you know, it's, it's seen as a genuine risk and, and rightly so. Um, uh, but I think what's more exciting is that they're starting to emerge that strong link between ESG credentials and financial performance. And, you know, people are starting to see that and that, you know, the, the kind of, uh, the, the, uh, the sort of view of the sector is definitely changing, but, uh, you know, it's not one or the other. You can you know, have both. Um, in terms of client awareness, I think whether it's driven by things like TCFD or SFDR, these various uh, regulations and frameworks, um, or even their own sustainability strategies or values, um, you know, we're under increasing client pressure to be transparent uh, and to demonstrate continued improvements in ESG performance. And I think to illustrate that, between 2018 and 2020, you know, the number of ESG-related client requests, you know, RFIs and RFPs, all those sorts of things, increased by 700%. And, you know, that's, look, that's looking like it's going to double again in 2021. So a real uptick in, in questions. And then I think to your question on geographies and sectors, um, these factors definitely have an impact. Um, you know, for example, Europe is definitely ahead of the curve on ESG um, with many mandatory policies already in place. Um, the US has lagged behind, but it's taking big steps now. They're back in the Paris Agreement. Um, and Asia Pacific, uh, another one of our regions, it, it's further behind, but in my view, it's, it's going to catch up quickly. Um, and I think, you know, whilst the ESG majority of our clients in terms of awareness broadly follows this logic, I think, you know, many of our clients like us are global and, you know, will often try to keep pace with best practice, you know, whether that's aligning with mandatory GHG reporting or things like the EU taxonomy. And in terms of sector, just finally on that point, on that question, I think, again, this, this plays a part in the level of awareness, but I think with sector, it's more about the opportunity and the stakeholder pressures. Um, so for instance, you know, logistics uh, plays a, you know, has a major opportunity for rooftop solar, you know, given the amount of available roof space. And in the office sector, they're under significant pressure, um, you know, to transition to net zero quickly, because it's often the first uh, focus of the corporate tenants who are working towards their own uh, net zero targets. So I mentioned at the outset, thank you for that, um, that CBRE Global Investors has a new sustainability vision. That's the name of a document, isn't it, um, that you were talking about to me previously. Is, is that sustainability vision publicly available? And, and what would you say were the main takeaways um, about the vision? Yeah, um, absolutely. We, we launched it, um, uh, I think it's probably coming up to a month ago now. Um, so it's, 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 it's very new. It's definitely publicly available. So you could just uh, simply Google CBRE Global Investors Sustainability Division and it, it should come up. Um, but otherwise, you'll, you'll find it on our website um, uh, and it's, it's nice, nice and clear. Um, I think the launch of our vision, just to sort of give a bit of context, um, is the culmination of, of you know, several years worth of materiality assessments and stakeholder engagement. Um, it's driven by a strong desire for us as a business to be leaders in ESG. Um, and, and what it is, I'd, I'd say it's, it's, it's much more than a document. You know, it's, it, it, the vision is there to set out our long-term plan and to focus our efforts. Uh, it provides an ambition framework for our global business um, for us all to get behind. Um, I was actually supporting uh, CBRE Global Investors as a consultant uh, throughout much of 2020 and some of 2019 with the development of the vision. Um, 
So when I was offered the chance uh, in 2021 to jump on board and help integrate it throughout the business, it's one of those opportunities, you know, you just can't refuse. I mean, you know, when you put all our assets uh, under management in one place, you know, we're, we're talking the equivalent of an international virtual city um, and with over 40, you know, not over around 40% of global greenhouse gas emissions coming from buildings, you know, both the operation and the construction, it just seemed like a, you know, a great opportunity to impact some real change. And you know, my view is that a strong sustainability strategy in, in any organization has the ability to transcend borders in a way that politics and policies can't, you know, often they move too slowly. I think given our scale, you know, we've got a real opportunity to do some good here. So just in terms of some key takeaways, um, I think the key things to know are the, the strap line for our vision is, is that we believe environmental social governance factors are fundamental to our business and to driving long-term outperformance. And I think as a business, we, we genuinely believe that right the way through from the top to the, to the bottom of the business. And our vision focuses on, um, on three pillars, so climate, people and influence, um, and that covers both our investments and our corporate operations. So just really quickly, I'll just take you through those three pillars, which I think are the key points of the vision. Um, for climate, uh, we commit to address climate-related risks and opportunities by focusing on delivering net zero carbon performance and physical resilience. So going back to that point with nearly 40% of global GHGs coming from buildings, and our 122 billion of assets under management, you know, climate is an absolutely key focus for us. It's a very interconnected and global ESG factor, but it's also a great uh, proxy for other ESG criteria. So to address climate, you have to pull a lot of other um, ESG issues with you. And then for people, we commit to champion diversity, equity, inclusion, and well-being of our people and other stakeholders. You know, with millions of people living in, working in, and using our assets every day, people is a, you know, it's a vital uh, factor for us uh, and an absolutely key one for us to focus our attention on. And then finally, that, that influence pillar where we commit to engage with and positively influence our key stakeholders where we do not have that direct management control. So it might be our final pillar, influence, but I think it's arguably the most important one. Um, it's our chance to bring our partners and our stakeholders with us and really impact change where we don't have that direct control. So it's our opportunity to, to fulfill that uh, goal of being a, an ESG leader and, and really vote with our corporate wallet uh, you know, through the influence that we have. I think the most exciting takeaway, just to finish on that point, is, is our target uh, under the climate pillar. Um, and you, know, you may have seen this on social media, and that's to be net zero carbon by 2040 or sooner where we have that direct control of our assets uh, and where we have that management discretion of our long-term strategies. Is 2040 ambitious enough in your opinion? Yeah, I think it's it's one of those things where you're seeing a lot in the news about you know, people setting uh, net zero strategies at the moment. Uh, I think there's a lot of different understandings of what net zero means um, and some are uh, true or absolute net zero targets and others, others are transitional, um, which means that they're able to uh, use offsets, um, you know, in terms of uh, compensation or neutralization. Ours is, you know, it's an absolute net zero target. Um, it's, it, you know, with a virtual city effectively under management, it's a lot of work to really genuinely reduce those emissions. It's, it's time and, and effort, but also significant investment. So, you know, we've got until 2050 um, to do this. We thought that was too late. Um, so 2040 for a business such of our, as ours, where the whole value chain has to be addressed, not just our corporate operations. 
it's ambitious, but I think it's necessary um, and it's going to be a real challenge, but I think uh, we're committed to, to working towards that. I've been on the ICRS board for just over a year now um, and it's, you know, it's a great organisation and, it's, and it's a, I think it's a pleasure to be a part of something which is dedicated to corporate responsibility and sustainability because um, a lot of the institutes have quite wide focusing um, uh, agendas. This is very much um, you know, aligned with what, what I do personally. For, for a living. So it's, it's been great to be involved with that, but you're completely right, you know, with the rise of ESG and sustainability going mainstream, you know, they're, they're, they're struggling like many institutes to, to keep up with the pace of things. Um, and I think it's also important to note that uh, like many institutes, they've struggled with COVID because these, they, they very much rely on um, events. So the shift in the short term, I think, has been to how they handle COVID and shift all those events online. So there's been a lot of discussion around um, you know, webinars and, and uh, thought leadership. But I think, you know, building on that point on ESG going mainstream and, and the real shift, a big focus has been on um, kind of mentoring within these institutes to really help provide the skills that the young people need, or even, you know, the experienced people for that matter, to just respond to this significant shift in the market. You know, five, five years ago, not even that, three years ago, sustainability professionals were you know, they, they were kind of almost the back room. They weren't, definitely didn't have the sort of board level, executive level exposure that they, they have now. And they weren't the sort of decision makers that they are now. You know, we've moved beyond that why. Um, and uh, it's been quite a shock, I'd say, to a lot in the, in, in the sort of profession. So I think the institutes are doing a lot to, to help upskill people, um, help them respond to these new responsibilities. Um, and, you know, a good example of that is... Uh, uh, they've just launched the, the ICRS, or it was about a year ago now, Aspire Hub on LinkedIn. Um, you know, so if there's any young aspiring uh, CRS professionals looking to break into the sector and help with this uh, significant uh, wave of ESG and sustainability challenges that we're all facing, then you know, I'd, I'd encourage them to join the Aspire Hub, um, but also look at joining the actual ICRS as an institute. Um, but yeah, absolutely, ESG is a, is a key focus uh, uh, and with a lot of in-house sustainability managers, um, they're just trying to keep pace with this, uh, this sort of green industrial revolution that we're, we're experiencing. Fascinating you should say that because I think um, speaking to um, previous clients of mine or even businesses of mine, um, the executive teams didn't see ESG coming, but I think it's been driven, certainly in my experience, by Generation Z um, employees entering the market and just not being just not tolerating an organization that doesn't take you know, environmental social impact and corporate governance to its heart um, so I mean that's why we, we started the, the ESG foundation last year and I think I might have mentioned in a previous conversation with you that we, we now have nearly 40 um, former volunteer graduate interns who are mad keen not just to get into the profession but actually to also demonstrably change management's perspective regarding the, the priorities of what their businesses are about. You know, what are they for? What is their purpose? So I'm very excited this year that the UK particularly will be centre stage of that kind of debate. You know, when we host the COP26 conference in Glasgow in November, um, do you think it matters to your clients that the UK is hosting COP26 or with your professional experience and background in ESG, do you think it's an opportunity for governments, particularly ours, to grandstand about our green credentials? Um, I, I mean, I, th I think 
politics aside, I think I think it, it's almost everything, and you know, in that sense, I don't think it needs to be one or the other. I, I think, from a personal perspective, but but also from a professional perspective, I think COP twenty six is hugely important. Um, I describe it as uh, you know providing a, a really clear point of focus for the world when it comes to climate change, and you know, as I said earlier. You know, climate is such an interconnected ESG risk, so it's a great proxy for so many other environmental and social issues. So if we're going to focus people's minds globally um, on an ESG issue, climate is, is a good one. Um, and I think, you know, getting into COP26, you know, in terms of that, that, that the question around, um, you know, is, is this something which uh, is exciting and, and generating interest or is it, is it mainly sort of for government? You know, I, I always describe trying to get into COP26 or any COP for that matter as, uh, you know, like trying to get a ticket to Glastonbury. Um, it's, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, I've actually quite, quite enjoyed watching all the corners of our economy, whether it be government organisations, uh, businesses, individuals, you know, all doing whatever they can to, to take those steps, generate those case studies, you know, particularly around, uh, you know, climate with the hope of, uh, you know, getting into, you know, uh, COP26 to showcase their thought leadership or their, or their case studies. So, it's it's definitely another driver for sustainability, and it's providing a real focal point for us as a business, but also for many of our clients. Um, and I think it's a chance for the UK um, and our businesses, whether they're UK businesses or international businesses operating within the UK, to showcase um, our leadership. And you know, I think the goal really for COP26 is to try to shift that global action up a gear as we all aim to build back better post-pandemic. So I'd, I'd love to see it. Know, be remembered like a Paris COP uh, as as the uh, as another uh, shift change in the global thinking. Um, I think just maybe one point to, to show to illustrate how how you know how seriously we're taking it is you know, at a group level, CBRE group level, uh, we're definitely hoping to get involved. Uh, we're one of those businesses thinking of every angle we can we can take and what we can do to get involved, whether it's core event or one of the peripheral events. Um, and I think, you know, as the largest global commercial real estate services company, that's the group, you know, we're in a unique position to influence Pathways to Net Zero. Uh, we approach that built environment, that 40% of global GSGs from almost every angle, the investment management arm with us and GI, but also, um, you know, the, the commercial uh, real estate services side that the, uh, the group offers. So yeah, we've, we've definitely put in an application and we're, we're hoping to um, partner with you know, our clients in more than 100 countries to, 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 to bring together some type of industry panel at COP26 to, to really showcase best practice and thought leadership in the built environment. So fingers crossed, but uh, I think it's, it's a pos- it can only be a positive thing, COP26, if, if uh, um, delivered uh, successfully. Uh, and let's hope it goes ahead this year. Tell you what, it would be even more, more fantastic if it actually became like Glastonbury. Um, we've been talking to one of the special advisors Um, I'm particularly interested that um, SMEs and the private sector you know those organizations yet which don't have a mandatory reporting requirement on ESG get invited Um, so uh, yeah watch this space Um, I'll let you join my you can come into my uh, COP26 tent uh, Robbie if uh, if I get the invitation before you I promise excellent Um, that'll be lovely there you go Um, so you're one of the founders of the Sustainability Circle, which suggests ways that we as individuals can reduce our environmental impacts. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the, the insights or ideas that you can share with, with the podcast listeners on Sustainability Circle? Yeah, I think, um, so 
you know, my day job is definitely where I have the biggest impact. Um, yeah, there's no, no doubt about that. Um, but I think, you know, in my view, that that big change does start at home. Um, and you know, with so many friends and family asking how they could play their part uh, towards, um, you know, uh, improving sustainability, climate change, a group of us in the sustainability sector. So we're all professionals working in a range of companies decided to start the sustainable circle in our, in our spare time. So it's the aim of it is very much about sharing our ideas, our insights as people working in the sector, um, and then also signposting, so not generating all the content ourselves, but signposting reliable sources of information to help everyday people play their part. But I think the really important thing in my view is to inspire them to then take that knowledge, um, hopefully that behavioral change back to their own places of work and their own communities, because then they individually um, you know, start to impact that much higher systems level change in their own organizations. Um, in terms of you know, the, the one thing I always say to everyone, because it's just so easy, is, you know, is to switch to a 100% uh, a renewable energy provider and, and one that uh, you know, uses biogas and offsets the rest of it. It literally takes two minutes um, and it instantly reduces your personal carbon footprint by you know, well over 20%. Um, and it directly supports the transition of our grid to renewable energy. It's, it's just such an easy thing. And I always say, when you go home tonight, just turn on your computer and switch to one of those many green energy providers that we've got access to in the UK, um, because you will be facilitating that change uh, instantly. Uh, you know, these, it's not gonna magic up all those, uh, uh, you know, brand new renewable energy facilities, but you are effectively investing in that change um, whilst also massively reducing your personal carbon footprint um, so it takes two minutes very easy thing to do now for those of us who maybe have already taken your advice and done that i'm going to press you for another one but whilst you're thinking about what the other um, hints might be that we could pick up i just wanted to make sure that i um introduced it properly is it the sustainability circle or the sustainable circle because i'd like people to look it up online if they're interested i just want to make sure they get the name right it's the it's the sustainable circle. Um, the sustainable so we've got, circle. Uh, right. Yeah, we've got a community platform um, at uh, so the sustainable circle.org and then we're also on uh, Instagram at, at the sustainable circle. And I, I'll give you two. Um, so I think <laughs> the next the next two I go to are typically, I mean again, they're, they're probably obvious ones, um, but I don't think people always appreciate quite how important they are. So international travel, you know, if if you were to read uh, uh, you know, the, the book, uh, How Bad Are Bananas, which is great, um, you know, on, on terms of carbon footprint, you know, they, you'd see, I think, one of the opening chapters that, you know, a return flight to um, Hong Kong or, or similar distance is, is almost your annual personal carbon allowance used up in one fell swoop. So, you know, cutting back on that international travel, keeping locally, uh, not, you know, not doing three international holidays a year, if you can avoid it. And similarly for business traveling, you know, as little as you can. Uh, and when you do, you know, take more sustainable forms of transport where it can't be avoided, look to uh, use credible removal offsets. But I think the other one, and this is quite an exciting one, and it's got both carbon and, you know, uh, welfare and social aspects to it, is, is just around our diet at home. You know, we know food waste is a is, uh, you know, the equivalent of, a, of, I think, probably the third largest country in terms of GHG emissions. Um, and what I've done on a personal level, and it's worked really well, is I'm, I'm not quite prepared to go full vegan um, or, or vegetarian for that matter, but I've significantly reduced my meat intake. So I, I, I challenge everyone to halve your, your meat intake, particularly red meat, if not to reduce red meat to once a month, if not less. 
and spend double on what you uh, would typically buy. So you're buying good locally sourced organic meat with good welfare uh, sort of credentials. And, you know, there's great labels you can look out for to help you do that. But that's a big chunk of your footprint uh, and also addresses social and welfare issues as well. So, yeah, that's the those are the other two I'd, I'd suggest. Brilliant. I knew you'd come up with three suggestions. That's fantastic. Um, we're, we're coming to the end of the podcast, um, but we haven't really mentioned what impact COVID-19 has had on ESG. Do you think the pandemic has helped to shine a spotlight on us? Yeah, I think I, I, I have to say I, I like this question. Um, it's it's one which comes up regularly in in a lot of the uh, the meetings I have with with clients and at work. And you know, in 2019, as as you'll know, and many of your listeners will know, uh, sustainability was on an absolute winning path to becoming mainstream. We couldn't believe our luck that we'd finally done it. Uh, and when the pandemic hit, you know, my first reaction was that sustainability was going to drop back to the bottom of the agenda like it did in 2008. Um, however, yeah, as, as I think we all know now, the opposite happened. Um, and, you know, whilst that is surprising, I think if you look under the hood, it, it probably isn't that surprising. Um, I think the pandemic did two things. I think firstly, it revealed the scale of the environmental challenge we have ahead of us. Um, you know, in 2020, the global economy was shut down for much of the year. The International Energy Agency said that you know, we had the largest annual drop in global greenhouse gas emissions since the Second World War. So that's around six or eight percent reduction on, on the previous year. But, you know, to put things into perspective, that's the reduction um, around sort of seven to eight percent that we're going to have to do every year for the next decade if we have a hope of aligning with the Paris um, Agreement. So it's really revealed the size of the environmental mountain that we've got to climb. And I think that's really woken people up uh, to things. But I think secondly, um, and you know, equally as important, if not more important, um, in terms of the social sustainability factors, you know, the pandemic, um, you know, which doesn't care about gender or ethnicity, has really widened uh, the social cracks that I think were already there in our societies uh, around the world. And it's also given us all time to reflect. So I think the global conversation really shifted in 2020 and a whole range of social movements gained significant momentum and, you know, in my view, hopefully unstoppable momentum uh, as we move into 2021. So I think just to conclude you know, on, that, on that point, you know, in my view, ESG with that increased focus on the S is now firmly in the boardroom. And that, that happened in 2020 during the peak of the pandemic. Uh, and you know, becoming, it's becoming integrated in people's thinking across the whole economy. Um, so as, you know, as we move into this critical decade for the planet, I think I'm, I'm personally really pleased that we're starting to move beyond the why and the conversation has firmly shifted to the what and the how. That's great stuff. I do hope you'll come back in a few months, Robbie, uh, to let us know what progress is being made. But in the meantime, thank you to everyone for listening. If you aren't doing so already, do subscribe to the ESG Foundations page on LinkedIn and subscribe to our channel on YouTube too to hear our range of interviews across the ESG spectrum. Thanks, Robbie, for that fascinating discussion. Thanks for having me.